If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Welcome back to Verified. I'm your host, Natasha Del Toro. Talc is the world's softest mineral. It's found deep in the earth, inside rock ore that's millions of years old. And mixed with talc, we often find another mineral, asbestos. The most unusual and useful mineral fiber known to man. Largely unseen, seldom recognized, it has played a tremendously important role in the improvement of our standard of living. As you might expect, the Greeks had a name for it. They called it the unquenchable, indestructible stone. They called it asbestos. That's a 1950s film made by the U.S. government. And its message is one that many of us have forgotten. People used to think asbestos was a magic mineral. Until they found out it was deadly. Well, there was some evidence as far back as the late 19th century that asbestos could cause respiratory disease. But it really wasn't until the early 1960s that the scope of the hazard became clear. Meet Jim Morris, one of our reporters. He's the executive editor of the Center for Public Integrity. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan, investigative news organization in Washington, D.C. He's been reporting on asbestos for more than 40 years. It was just in everything back then, right? Oh, yeah, it was in everything. Uh, Insulation, uh, firefighting gear, brake pads. It was resistant to heat, electricity, chemicals. You know, it was used in so many things, I couldn't even begin to list them all. It was everywhere. We're talking about asbestos today because its journey from so-called magic mineral to known carcinogen is key to understanding this story and the safety of talc. Scientists have been looking at the possible link between talc and cancer for decades, well before Dean Berg started her lawsuit to prove that talc caused her ovarian cancer. But researchers have also studied a second set of questions. Does talc contain asbestos? And if so, can that cause cancer? For years, Johnson & Johnson has followed all of this research very closely. More than followed, it tried to influence scientists and regulators, all while trying to keep questions about asbestos and the safety of talc out of the public eye. That's the journey we're going on today. And we're starting with asbestos. So then how did we find out that asbestos actually made people very sick? Well, in the 1960s, a researcher at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York uh, started studying insulation workers. His name was Irving Selikov, and he figured out that asbestos gets into the lung tissue. You know, the body simply can't break it down or absorb it. 
and so it can create scarring in the lungs, which is a disease called asbestosis. And the scarring gets so bad that people can't get oxygen. They slowly suffocate, and then they die. Others who are exposed to asbestos die of mesothelioma, which is a rare cancer of the lining of the lung or abdomen. Dr. Selikov was a public figure because of his research on asbestos. He testified before Congress about how insulators were dying these terrible deaths, and his findings hit the mainstream news. Asbestos, a moral fiber, a mineral fiber once commonly used as insulation, has been identified as the cause of lung cancer. Scientists used to believe that there was some degree of exposure that the body could take without developing cancer or other lung abnormalities. Well, they're not so sure about that any longer. In fact, in the light of current research, many scientists are now convinced that there is no safe amount of asbestos that the body can absorb. It was in large part due to Selikoff's work that scientists know that asbestos kills. I'd like you to think about that for a second. We now know that even a relatively light exposure is enough to make some people sick. A lot of countries banned asbestos in the late 1980s. You know, but believe it or not, it is still being imported into the United States and tragically it might take decades for disease to show itself. Here's Selikoff from a news clip in 1974. We don't see cancer either in the worker or the family in less than about 20, 25, or 30 years from the time the breathing in of the fiber begins to occur. Nature, in other words, has been playing its cards very close to its vest. It, it's trapped us. Like Selikoff says, while it can take anywhere from two to four decades, or even longer, for someone to get sick after being exposed, you don't live long once you get it. The average mesothelioma victim doesn't live much longer than a year after they're diagnosed. And again, we know now that this disease can be caused by relatively light exposures. So it was really Irving Selikoff and his lab at Mount Sinai that sounded the alarm to the dangers of asbestos. And Selikoff's lab also played an important role in the investigations that followed into the safety of talc. In the 1970s, the research about the safety of talc and asbestos began to intersect with Johnson & Johnson and its interest in protecting the baby powder brand. Now, I want to introduce you to another member of our verified team, Sandra Bartlett. She's a very experienced investigative reporter who's been tracking this part of the story for us. Cracking open what was going on inside J&J all these decades ago. I've spent about three years reading and talking to scientists who were doing research on the safety of talc throughout the 70s and 80s. Not many of them are still alive, but I was able to track down a few of them, and you'll hear from them in a few minutes. Also, I went through so many documents, just hundreds of memos, letters, and studies that were part of Dean Berg and other lawsuits against J&J. So, Sandra, baby powder has been one of J&J's core products. Were they freaking out with these reports suggesting that talc might not be safe? 
Well, not freaking out exactly, but definitely engaged. Let me tell you about a pattern of behavior I noticed with J&J when it comes to dealing with scientists and regulators. What kind of pattern? This is a company that fights back. It's not going to accept any possibility that talc can contain asbestos or make people sick. So the company really got defensive when it heard of any research suggesting talc was not safe. It would immediately question the findings, pressure the scientists not to publish their results. It was the same with regulators who wanted to set standards for testing talc for asbestos. But the goal with the tactic seemed to be to stop any mention of talc safety from reaching the wider public, especially the women who were using it on themselves and their children. Wow, that's pretty surprising. So let's let's walk through some examples. Where do you want to start? Well, I've seen references to this issue in internal J&J documents as far back as the 60s. One memo in 1969 said the company needed a policy on tremolite. Now, tremolite is in the asbestos family. Not all forms of tremolite are asbestos, but some are. And the memo said that medical concerns had been raised about the presence of tremolite in talc. The writer of the memo wondered, how bad is tremolite, and how much can safely be in talc? But things started to get really interesting in the 70s. 1971 was a key moment. That's when the first study came out that raised questions about talc and its potential relationship to asbestos and cancer. The study was done by a Welsh researcher named William Henderson. He was testing a new lab technique to see if he could find foreign particles in diseased tissue. So, just a lab experiment. But what he found surprised him. He discovered talc in cancerous ovarian tissues. Hold on, so let me get this straight. In 1971, a scientist found talc in cancerous ovarian tissue. Is he linking asbestos to ovarian cancer? No, no. To be clear, Henderson found talc in the ovarian tissues, not asbestos. But at the very beginning of the paper, he says, and I'm going to quote, the close association of talc to the asbestos group of minerals is of interest. And that's the kind of comment that would get the attention of other researchers. Because remember, by this point, it's well known that asbestos causes cancer. So this study is really, really important because of the connection that he made between talc and ovarian cancer. How did J&J react? They reacted fast. J&J officials went to Wales to meet with the researcher. They asked about the purpose of the study, how the talc got in the ovarian tissue. The J&J memo on the meeting says the Henderson group thought the talc might have gotten into the ovaries because the women used talc on their genitals or birth control devices. However, the memo says the researchers didn't think the talc caused the cancer. So at the end of the meeting, J&J asked to borrow the tissues to retest them. And then they hired a researcher from Irving Selikoff's lab, considered the best at Mount Sinai, to do these retests. The researcher was Arthur Langer, and you'll hear from him in a couple of minutes. But he went ahead and did the tests. And he found what he thought was talc in the tissues, particles consistent with talc is how he phrased it, same findings as Henderson. 
but he also found something else. Langer found traces of asbestos in the tissue. So the researcher that Jane Jay hires thinks there's talc in the ovarian tissue, and he also finds asbestos in the tissue? Yeah, big deal, right? And he wanted to publish a paper on the results. But J&J wrote him a two-page letter pointing out all the reasons that wasn't a good idea. The big one, they said, was an issue with the Welsh lab. It wasn't as clean as it should be. And none of the results were reliable, including his. J&J said in the letter that publishing his findings would have, quote, limited scientific value. I don't know. I think that could be the first time we know of that J&J tried to discourage a scientist from going public with test results that found asbestos in ovarian tissue. And that suggestion that the lab was contaminated? Remember that, because we're going to see that allegation raised again and again by J&J. Lab contamination. Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, And and what do you know about what's going on at J&J during this time? What are they saying about all this? There have been ongoing discussions in J&J about how to keep the talc free of asbestos. One J&J employee said he wanted to, quote, upgrade the quality control on our talc and baby powder, particularly as to the potential asbestos content. Two years earlier, a memo said the company had to firm up the position on the presence of tremolite in talc. Firm up our position? What does that mean? Well, they seem to be anticipating that the safety of talc could become an issue. This was an ongoing conversation throughout the 60s and 70s. We can see this come up in the documents, and they were trying to see if they could develop methods to remove asbestos from talc. And someone from their talc mining operations acknowledged that there could be materials presenting, quote, severe health hazards in all of the talc ores in use at the time. And get this, J&J was even doing tests on mannequins to determine how much baby powder a baby could inhale in one dusting. Oh, well, that sounds weird. Uh, Why would they do that kind of testing? Well, there were some pediatricians that had concerns about babies inhaling the powder, so they wanted to check it out. So by the early 1970s, Johnson & Johnson was hyper-aware that there were a number of researchers testing talc products. And it was trying to keep an eye on them the medical director created a list of what they called antagonistic personalities and circulated it within the company. And the list contained some of the top researchers in the country, like Irving Selikoff and Arthur Langer, who I just mentioned. It reads a bit like some kind of political opposition research, you know, listing reasons why these people can't be trusted. They were publicity seekers or career climbers, or they used unorthodox methods. There was even an official from the Food and Drug Administration on the list. And of course, several on the list were researching asbestos and talc. There's another story from the 70s I want to tell you that includes one of these researchers. And we see the J&J defensive machine rev up again. All right, let's hear it. Okay, so after the Henderson retests... Mount Sinai kept looking into these questions of talc and asbestos, this time on its own, without J&J funding. So that scientist I was telling you about, Arthur Langer, he set out to explore an important question. Does talc contain asbestos? Because if it did, that could be a huge health risk. 
We weren't funded to do this. We had a petty cash box in Selikoff's uh, secretary's desk. And occasionally we would go out, go down Madison Avenue. There were a number of pharmacies along the way. And we selected different manufacturers' varieties of uh, talc-based products, body powder, baby powder, facial powder. By 1975, Langer had a new set of results. He found asbestos in the talc products he bought off the shelf, and he wanted to present his findings at a conference in Edinburgh with his research partner, Fred Pooley, who's based in the UK. They knew each other from conferences, and they teamed up. Pooley tested UK talc samples, and Langer got his in New York on Madison Avenue, as he says. They're all set to present their findings. And then at the last minute, Pooley calls Langer with a problem. Pooley didn't want to publish it, in part because he and Langer had tested different samples and found different things. Pooley didn't find any asbestos in the UK talc samples. But there's something else. Pooley told me that Jane Jay suggested he might not want to publish with Langer. Jane Jay didn't agree with the paper, a uh, combined paper being, uh, you know, as it showed up the American talks to be dirtier than the British talk. Dirtier, meaning Langer had found asbestos in the American samples he'd tested. Uh, they weren't. Uh, they weren't happy about that. I can't remember the conversations at that time, but it was something along the lines, you know, yeah, you know, do you realize, you know, that uh, you, you don't know how accurate <laughs> they've been in their analysis, and you're putting your name on a paper where their results will be, you know, published. Pooley said he wasn't happy about pulling the paper at the last minute. But he accepted that maybe Langer's results weren't solid and his tests on UK talc hadn't found any asbestos. What Langer didn't know is that in the 70s, Fred Pooley conducted research and consulted for Jane j Did he ever tell you that he had contacted Johnson & Johnson about his concerns? No. Did you know that at the time he was a consultant for Johnson & Johnson? No. Pooley downplayed Jane Jay's influence over him, saying that his research on talc was mostly funded by Johnson & Johnson, but he didn't get the money. It was given to the university. But still, listen to how he describes his connection to Jane Jay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I used to, uh, uh, how can I put it? The, I acted like a little bit of a firefighter for, for, for Johnson & Johnson. If there was a sample that... Um, had been vilified by somebody, <laughs> you know. You know, we examined a, a sample of this uh, can, and uh, we found X, Y, and Z. Then they would normally say, you know, would you look at this just, just, just to check that out? Acted like a little bit of a firefighter. What's that mean? Interesting word choice, right? Pooley was one of Jane Jay's go-tos on this issue. By the way, Langer did eventually publish his results. So once again, Johnson & Johnson tries, and at least partially succeeds, to stop results from becoming public. And twice with the same researcher. Yeah, and there's one more run-in with Langer and the Mount Sinai lab. That's story number three. 
Langer had continued his work, and he wasn't going to be stopped this time. He had explosive research. Half of the 20 products he tested contained asbestos. And not just a little bit. In some of them, the asbestos content made up 14% of the talc. 14%? That sounds like a lot, especially if you consider that just a small amount of asbestos can be enough to make some people really sick. Right, exactly. But somehow the findings leaked to the media before he could publish. And then he got a call from J&J asking for a meeting. Well, uh, they, as you can imagine, uh, they weren't terribly happy. And uh, their products had been used for generations. Uh, they had no evidence of uh, effects in human populations. People um, don't like to have unhappy uh, news dumped in their lap. So one of the biggest companies in the world was demanding a meeting with Mount Sinai that was one of the top research labs in the country. Yeah, and just to remind people, this is Irving Selikoff's lab. He was the authority on asbestos. So we have this meeting, Selikoff and Langer, with two senior Johnson & Johnson people. And here's how Langer describes the tone. Well, the meeting uh, started... It was... It was less than cordial. Natasha, it's kind of funny, actually. He calls it less than cordial. In an earlier conversation, he told me J&J yelled at them for about five minutes, saying the information could affect their business and scare their customers. Into the meeting, 15 or 20 minutes, and people regained composure. We talked about what it is the important issues were. Once again, J&J said the research was flawed. This time, they said it was because the talc that he tested was more than three years old. So the talc was old. So what? I mean, shouldn't all talc products be asbestos-free no matter when they're produced? Exactly, you'd think. But anyway, the Mount Sinai group pushed back. They said they had tests on six newly bought products, and they all contained asbestos. (laughs) Well, I think it's quite obvious they were quite angry with uh, these uh, trace amounts of uh, asbestos. It's bad for business. It's this. It's found to be safe. It's et cetera, et cetera. Okay, we have to study this uh, further, which I thought was uh, responsible and level-headed. So the team of scientists is basically saying they're not going to back down. I'm sure J&J could not have been happy about that. No, they weren't. The two J&J execs leave the researchers and march right upstairs to the office of the president of the medical center. That was Thomas Chalmers. And they asked him to retract the research. A Johnson & Johnson memo describing the meeting says Chalmers was reluctant. But J&J insisted. And the next day, Chalmers sent a statement to the media saying that reports about Mount Sinai's research had created considerable confusion. He said any implication that most talc products contained asbestos was wrong. He wanted to clarify, to set the record straight. 
He said the most commonly used baby talc has been consistently free of asbestos. That Mount Sinai's pediatrics team thought talc was safe and useful. He didn't name J&J, but the effect was to clear their talcum powder. Wait, so was he saying, was he saying that his researchers were wrong? Not at all. Uh, Chalmers called their work of the highest technical quality and a significant contribution to the field. He also said that any time they found asbestos in talc, they reported it to the FDA. The mistake, he seemed to be saying, was in testing products bought more than three years ago. He said baby powder on the shelves was fine. And when the newspapers called the Mount Sinai researchers for comment, they stuck by their findings. Salikoff suggested that the issue over the age of the talc was raised by J&J because the industry had been improving talc quality in recent years. But he added this little bit. I certainly wouldn't want to be dusted with any asbestos. There's no safe level of asbestos known. Now, after all that, J&J wrote to Chalmers saying they were disappointed in the media coverage. They said, quote, the article falls far short of our mutual goal of reassuring consumers. But, you know, internally they were celebrating. A memo from J&J's medical director to other senior people said its formidable defensive talc resulted in an unprecedented media retraction and affirmation of the safety and usefulness of Johnson's baby powder. Huh. So I'm definitely seeing the pattern that you're talking about. Researcher finds asbestos in talc, and J&J moves in to keep it quiet. Could it be, though, that they genuinely think this research is wrong? It could be. But this pattern of behavior that started in the 70s is one they continued to use. When questions are raised about the safety of talc, whether it's new research, new testing, they start from the presumption that the findings are wrong. They look at the research, they talk to the scientists, and then they attack their analysis and their credibility. They say their equipment wasn't good enough, their methods aren't sound, their lab technicians aren't experienced enough, and their labs, they're likely contaminated. Now, I want to say that it's true that testing for asbestos was still maturing at the time. No one was sure yet what was the best method or equipment. Sometimes retests found different results. But the thing to remember here is labs kept finding traces of asbestos in talc over and over again. And J&J didn't want anyone to know about it. I have one more memo from 1975 talking about doing their own talc safety studies and how it was basically to rebuff researchers questioning the safety of their talc. They said they initiate studies, quote, only as dictated by confrontation, and that the principal advantage of this philosophy is to, quote, minimize the risk of possible self-generation of scientific data which may be politically or scientifically embarrassing. In other words, they didn't want to generate any science that could be used against them. After the break, 
we look at another front in J&J's battle to keep research about the potential dangers of talc quiet. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Around the same time that J&J was trying to convince scientists that any finding of asbestos in talc was wrong, the FDA was getting concerned about the possibility of asbestos in talc. It had seen published research and the few news stories that were published about those studies. So it called a meeting in August of 1971 with researchers, talc miners, and industry groups. And of course, J&J. It wanted industry to know that it was starting the process to create regulations for talc. Now, this was important because the FDA doesn't test or approve cosmetics and toiletries like it does drugs before they go on the market. It might sound strange, but they actually rely on companies to self-police to make sure their products are safe. But they can set standards like how much, if any, asbestos can be in talc. So, Sandra, what happened at that FDA meeting? Well, J&J treated the FDA much like the scientists we've talked about. They sent nine people to this meeting, and they gave this presentation about how they'd been in the talc business for 70 years and had never seen any adverse effects from its use. But other people at the meeting made the point, well, actually, there's very little data on the effects of talc in people or animals. And maybe we should look into this more. Others talked about figuring out how to standardize a test for analyzing talc. At the time, there were several kinds of equipment and different methods used to test for asbestos and talc, some more sensitive than others. So that's interesting. Tell me more about that. There wasn't just one way to test for asbestos and talc? No, there wasn't. And this is really key. There are one-step methods two-step methods, and three-step methods. And some of them would have a hard time finding asbestos in talc. So when researchers would say they found asbestos in talc, Johnson & Johnson discredited the tests, the methods, the equipment. Without standardized testing, there was no way to settle the debate and hold J&J to account. So right after the 1971 meeting, the FDA hired one of the top researchers in the U.S., to test a whole bunch of talc products, from baby powder to face powder and tooth powder. And then in the summer of 1972, this FDA researcher came back with results on the first hundred samples. He found asbestos in about 40 of them. Ooh, 
he found asbestos in 40% of the samples. That's bad news for the cosmetic companies, especially when they've been denying that there's asbestos in talc. Were any of them J&J products? Yes, they were. Two were from J&J products. Wow. Okay, so what does the FDA do with those results? Well, what it wanted to do was move ahead on creating regulations and force companies to abide by them. And it wanted to publish those test results. Instead, it had to deal with pushback from J&J and the Cosmetics, Toiletries and Fragrance Association, or CTFA for short. That was an industry group, and J&J was a very influential member. And what, what was the pushback? J&J sent a 245-page report to the FDA with reports from its lab showing its talc was clean. It said other experts disagreed with FDA findings and said the agency should keep its results in strict confidence unless we consent to other use of it. Unless we consent? Unless J&J consents? Yeah, J&J told the FDA to keep quiet. And the CTFA told the FDA that publishing the results would hurt the companies and the employees who make these products. Now, when the FDA said it was official policy to release the results, the CTFA threatened to sue to stop the release. Okay. I understand the industry was worried people would stop buying its products if the FDA warned talc might contain asbestos. But what about the safety of those products? I mean, were they concerned about the people using their products? Natasha, in the hundreds of J&J documents I've looked at, I've never seen concerns raised about endangering their customers. I can't say what was in their hearts, But what they were writing about constantly was the concern about protecting what they called the cornerstone of the baby products franchise. And they frequently disputed tests that said their powder contained asbestos. And just like they said to the scientists, they told the FDA, let us do our own tests and we'll tell you if there's really any asbestos in talc. But the FDA had actually already sent the J&J samples to a second lab. And again, asbestos was found. So it had two labs agreeing that there was asbestos in J&J's talc. They can't go against that now, can they? And they've got two labs agreeing there's asbestos in the talc. Well, you would think. But that's not how they reacted. J&J had its own tests saying there wasn't asbestos in the talc. And it told the FDA if the agency didn't agree and soon not to publish its results, the company would appeal directly to the commissioner of the FDA. Threatening to go to the top. That's kind of like when they appealed to the president of Mount Sinai's medical center. Exactly. And it works. The FDA official meeting with J&J told him, according to a J&J recap of the meeting, that the FDA's hired tester was likely wrong and outside his field of competence. Now that was interesting. Because until then, the FDA had stood by those results. But the next thing the FDA guy said was even more startling. The J&J memo says, quote, When I pressed for assurance that the report would not be issued, he said it would be issued 
only over my dead body. I don't understand. That's the FDA guy saying over my dead body will this thing get published? That's astonishing. Right? There seems to have been a fight going on within the FDA, or at least a big difference of opinion. One part of the FDA says the results are going to be published and there will be testing rules. And another part is saying that will never happen. And you know, Natasha, it didn't happen. The FDA never followed through on its announced plan to create regulations or standardized testing for talc. It left it in industry's hands. Wow, that is shocking to me that the FDA would just let the industry decide the standard for testing? That's how it was left, but it did check in periodically with industry about testing methods. At one point, the CTFA tried to convince the FDA to allow 1% asbestos in talc, that 1% would be safe. The FDA had a response to that. Quote, The calculation was foolish, since no mother was going to powder her baby with 1% of a known carcinogen. 1%. I mean, we know, and I assume that the CTFA knew, that it just takes a little bit of asbestos to cause cancer in some people. I mean, we've said that over and over again. So what's going on? I mean, how can they possibly say 1% of asbestos would be safe? Yeah, and given all the discussion that's taken place with the FDA, it's hard to imagine how they could be so bold as to suggest 1% was safe. From my reading of documents that talk about looking for a reliable test method and the difficulties in doing that, I think the 1% limit would have been designed to give companies wiggle room. Of course, we don't know if the FDA would have let industry have that wiggle room because it didn't set a testing standard. And it didn't publish those results that found asbestos in all those talc samples. No, no, it didn't. It kind of threw up its hands and said it needed time to study all the methods. But it never got back to the issue. So J&J got everything they wanted. No regulations, no public notice of test results. Which means the public never knew that as far back as 1972, the FDA hired a scientist who found asbestos in Johnson & Johnson talc products. That's a huge win for the company. So J&J was able to keep its products on store shelves with no warning for decades. So we want to take a minute to reflect on what we just laid out on this pattern of behavior that we've seen from J&J and the industry. Because this strategy for dealing with questions about the safety of a product, it's not even remotely new. If they acknowledge that it causes harm, first of all, they'll have to stop selling it. And so the instinct is to defend the product. David Michaels is an epidemiologist and was the head of OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, under President Obama. So he's seen firsthand how companies avoid regulation by questioning science, by saying, well, we just don't have enough information yet. It's true that the studies looking at whether a particular product causes cancer generally aren't perfectly conclusive or complete. 
That's the nature of this type of research. What we'd like to do ideally is a randomized clinical trial where if you have a a chemical you think causes cancer, you take a thousand people, you divide them randomly into two groups of 500, and you, you feed one group this carcinogenic chemical for 30 years and the other one you don't, and then you look at the result. You can't do that. Michael says that we saw an extreme version of questioning the science with the tobacco companies. The phrase doubt is our product is a very famous phrase that was used by a a tobacco executive in a memo that is now available to the public where that executive described how the tobacco industry produced not just cigarettes, but doubt. And that was how they were able to keep selling this deadly product without fear of regulation or litigation. So the argument that we can't do anything until there are more studies, better studies, according to Michaels, that's essentially a stall tactic. That's a recipe for failure. That's a recipe to ensure that people will continue to get sick from exposures. And look, sometimes the studies are wrong, and we may end up occasionally over-regulating, over-protecting the public from an exposure, which probably we didn't need to be so protective of. But for the most part, the preliminary evidence turns out to be true, that we ought to be going in there much more quickly to stop exposure to make sure people are safe. So, almost 50 years have gone by without any public warning about a potential danger with talc. We, the consumers, were left in the dark. That's decades of women who just kept dusting baby powder on themselves, sprinkling it on their most sensitive areas. And it turns out that habit hits some communities much harder than others. Communities J&J actually targeted in its quest to sell more baby powder. This is the, 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 the poor people's cologne. People in poverty can get a 12-cent bottle of baby powder, sprinkle it on your body, and you're just as fresh as the next person. That's next time on Verified. Dust Up, our second season of Verified, is reported by Sandra Bartlett and Jim Morris. It's written and produced by me, Natasha Del Toro, Sandra Bartlett, Tracy Samuelson, Suzanne Reber, and senior producer Dan Bloom. Additional production by Grant Hill and Claire Rawlinson. Our editors are Peter Clowney, Tracy Samuelson, and Ellen Weiss. Engineering by Casey Holford and Dan Bloom. Our theme and original music are by Allison Leighton Brown. Special thanks to the many women and men who spoke with us on and off the microphone about this story, which spans decades. Verified is created by Suzanne Reber and executive produced by Suzanne Reber, Ellen Weiss, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. The show is produced by the Scripps Washington Bureau in collaboration with Witness Docs, a Stitcher network. If you want to listen to early releases of our Verified episodes, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com. You can use promo code WITNESS for one month free. There's so much for you to discover about this story and what's coming up on the show. You can find us on Twitter at Verpod. 
and at Verified Pod on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have a story to tell us, send us a voicemail or an email to verifiedpod at stitcher.com. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people discover Verified. Thanks for listening. I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is Verified.